Welcome to Sports Across the Board, a podcast covering all aspects of the games people play. Now from Atlanta, here's your host, Gary McKillips. Welcome to Sports Across the Board. Our guest today is Jim Hart. Jim covers golf for AP Radio Sports. He's also the Atlanta correspondent for MLB Radio on Sirius XM and is a frequent guest on radio shows across the Southeast. He also covered Georgia Tech for a time and had his own radio show. And Jim, uh, truth be told, about 10 years ago, I think, I was on your show, which uh, (laughs) seems like yesterday, but it uh, was a long time ago. Do you remember what we uh, were talking about that day? I do remember very, very well, Gary. By the way, thank you for the invite. Congratulations on your show. Ten years ago when I had you on my show, I'll never forget because I still have the carnival music from the Braves Stadium down in Orlando playing in the background while you and I did the interview. And I was very appreciative of you coming on the show. It was a great interview, and uh, it was fantastic. Yeah, that was back at uh, Walt Disney World when the Braves trained there. And, of course, now they're at the new venue at North Point, which I don't think many of us have seen because of this COVID thing. It opened uh, last year, and then, uh, you know, even this year, uh, spring training was not uh, accessible, actually. So, anyway, we'll get there. But we want to talk about another venue today. I know you're fresh off the covering the Masters this year. And for those who have never been to Augusta, tell us a little bit what what it's like, maybe what it was like when you first saw it. I've had the opportunity to cover a lot of events in this business, and before that, as a spectator, go to a lot of events, and I've never felt a buzz for a sporting event, Gary, as I did when I went to the Masters. Just driving there, you can feel it. It's the only event, or at least the one, that I was very nervous going to. My stomach was just churning, and I don't really know why. I guess it was after many years of watching the Masters on TV and hearing about it and, and all the history. And, and, of course, we all know how difficult it is to for the players and, and for the media to, to be able to get there, either buying a ticket or having the opportunity to cover it. And it's interesting when I got there in that you're driving along the road was kind of like Roswell Road. And right across the street, before you turn to the Masters, there's a strip shopping center. So it wasn't quite like I imagined what was outside. But once you get inside, everything changes. It's like a world unto its own. The first thing you notice when you pull in, there's two squad cars that are ready to chase if anybody tries to do something they shouldn't do. And then you have a checkpoint. And then you get in. As you get out of your car, there's a, a, a... a guy with a bomb-sniffing dog, and then you go through another checkpoint. So I don't know if the White House has quite the security that Augusta National was, but I could go on and on about the tournament and, and everything I experienced, but that was just the initial reaction of going there, and it kind of gives you an idea right up front how well that event is organized and everything that goes into it. You've seen some uh, great ones. You saw Tiger Woods win his last probably his last championship ever. I did 2019, and for a golf fan, whether you're watching on TV or if you're there, it's always Nirvana when Tiger is in contention and and or wins, or Phil Mickelson back in the day, of course, Tom Watson, Jack Nicklaus. That's what you look for as a golf fan. It's a a different sport than other uh, sports in that people don't, pull for the underdogs. They, they want the, the leaders to win and Tiger winning 
the buzz around the course and the excitement and the amount of people that were following him on the last day was just massive. It was hard to actually get a vantage point where you could really see him take a shot or putt. This year we had a, uh, a bit of a surprise, I guess. We had the first Asian golfer win. We, we did, uh, Mr. Matsuyama, and uh, he actually, interestingly enough, since 1936, there's been 100 appearances by Japanese players at the Masters, and that was the first time that a Japanese had ever even led the tournament, Gary, on Saturday. And then, of course, he went on to win, and talking with the players and media, they say it's unbelievable the amount of coverage he gets in Japan. He's like the Elvis in Japan, uh, Japan and has been hounded. And now that he's won the Masters over there, they're talking about him carrying the torch at the Olympics. And he's uh, been a tremendous uh, boon for Japan. Who are some of the other golfers that caught your eye out there? There's, uh, you know, the tour has a lot of different champions these days, but uh, who else was looking good that uh, that Saturday, or that weekend, rather? The guy that caught everybody's eye was Will Zalatoris, who seemingly came out of nowhere and was in contention all the way through. Going into Sunday, you could tell that the two best ball strikers were Matsuyama and Zalatoris, and that's what the guys have finished 1-2. He's got a real short, compact swing. In fact, when I looked at his swing, it kind of looks like an old man's swing because he doesn't take it back very far. But he generates tremendous power, and actually because he does have such a short swing, that's a swing that will probably hold him in really good uh, stead and keep him as a very consistent player on the tour. And he finished second by just a stroke, is that right? He did. He did. Uh, And he... He was. Uh, he ended up, uh, yeah, only one off the lead, had a real good chance to win, although Matsuyama had a four-shot lead going into the final round, and really it was his tournament to win all the way. He did come back at the end, but he had enough to hold on and win. Now, this year they didn't have full attendance. I guess it was somewhat limited, but it had to be a still a contrast to what it was, let's say, when Tiger was there. In November last year, 2020, when we were in the throes of COVID, it was similar to going to maybe a state amateur event where you had family and friends out there. Of course, there was a fair amount of media also, but it was very quiet. A lot of people thought Dustin Johnson was able to win because he didn't have the pressure and the hoopla that you normally would have with 80,000 people out there and so much more media coverage. This past year, it was kind of a nice compromise because you had on TV, I'm sure you could see it, and you're out there, there was enough people, there was a real nice crowd, but yet you could still get to vantage points and you could see all the golf that you wanted to see. What's happened to guys like Justin Thomas and Dustin Johnson and uh, and even Rory? We haven't seen too much of him. I was looking at the list of the golf rankings, and I think golf is in a real transition right now with Tiger out again and, and maybe forever and Phil now 51, although Phil looked really good physically. He looks like he can still play. But with those two out and with the equipment over the years being so good, it really – has made it so that a lot of people are very good players and can compete. 
But I think that is the one challenge for golf because it's a personality-driven sport. And you look at Dustin Johnson, ranked number one in the world, John Rahm, number two, Justin Thomas, number three, all very good players, but not real personalities. The guy who really can drive golf, and you could see it in the TV rankings this year, was just Jordan Spieth. He had a few lean years there. He's back now playing very well. He's been playing as good as anybody since January, and you could see it at the Masters. He was a guy that was drawing the biggest crowd. He's won three majors, 14 events, so he's a guy that would really help the PGA Golf Tour to keep playing well and, and win major championships. You know, earlier in the year, I guess late last year, uh, Bryson DeChambeau was the talk of the tour. He bulked up and uh, he was uh, hitting some screaming drives. And I think he won a couple of uh, key tournaments. But has he tapered off somewhat now? Due to the nature of the way he plays and the gripping and rip it mentality, a guy like him, is, I think it's going to be situational for him. He's going to play great on some courses. Other courses are going to be a lot more challenging for him because he hits it a long way, but often he has challenges keeping it in the fairway. He also, he's an average putter. He struggled on the Masters greens. Looks like that course is not going to be a match for his skills, but he's also someone who has helped the PGA Tour popularity in the last couple of years, Gary. He kind of reminds me of a Neo-John Daly without the cigarettes, the beer, and the Diet Coke. <laughs> guy that's really into health but can pound it a long way and bows up and flexes when he hits it. And that's what golf fans love to see, guys that are going for it. That's what made Phil and Tiger so popular over the years. And even John Daly was pretty popular. He was just a very unique individual. He was tremendously popular individual, kind of appealed to the Bubba crowd, brought a lot of people into golf as fans that golf never had before. The the blue-collar worker, maybe the guy that go, likes golf, but he goes out and plays it in, in shorts, a T-shirt, and, and bare feet with uh, maybe a few beers in the in the golf bag. So he, he was tremendous for, for the sport of golf. Uh, I don't know if, uh, I don't think I've seen the ratings for the Masters, but how did they do this year on television? The ratings for golf have been fantastic since COVID. It's a sport that was actually the best well-suited for TV, and they, they were able to get back playing without having the team sport aspect with uh, the players, and you know, it's outside, and uh, the, you know, the fans were able to get around. So it, it was the best as far as all the COVID challenges. So early on, a lot of people were tuning in because it was kind of the only game in town and it people sitting at home with nothing to do. But it's continued into this year where golf is doing extremely well. The popularity is up. I kind of wonder also, it's the one sport where I think that the players understand the media and they understand the golf fans and you don't hear any of them talking politics at all where other sports, the players are venturing into that openly golf. They don't do that. Even Phil Mickelson was asked a question 
about politics. And he said, you know, he said, I used to do that a little bit. I'm not going to do that anymore. And I heard other players. There was a lady on there who was asking all the players political questions about the voting in Georgia. And they were either they were all very well schooled because they all eloquently kind of gave a non-answer and dodged it and avoided politics. You know, I'm kind of a romanticist when it comes to golf. And I think back to the days of and maybe Ben Hogan. I remember him vaguely from being a little kid, but uh, that's when golf first drew my attention. But then you have guys, obviously, like Arnie and Jack Nicklaus and Gary Player and all those. Do you think we'll ever get back to something like that? I mean, it was a, a remarkable era. It was a remarkable era. And I think back then, you had more personalities, people were people. But they didn't have trainers and and attorneys and media relations people. They weren't all necessarily college graduates. They were just guys that were out there. They loved golf. There wasn't the money to be made then. So I think a lot of those guys pretty much did what they wanted to do. It's changed so much now. And one mistake, as we've seen in sports, saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing can end a career. And I think when you look back, Arnie and Jack, and maybe not necessarily them, there was guys like Ray Floyd back then and and some other ones that lived a little uh, kind of sketchy lives. And it made golf fun. But people, you know, sports and athletes, they've just got to watch what they do and say. They're insulated. And, and it's just a whole different animal right now than it used to be. So any insights into the PGA? That's coming up. Very shortly, I guess. Uh, it is, and I think that going in, you wonder about Dustin Johnson, Gary, winning the Masters in November. He didn't make the cut for the Masters here this past April, and you wonder, he's still a guy that you got to choose as the number one choice, but where is he? That sometimes determines whether where, where, where does a guy, guy's career go. Uh, after winning a major, is he still as hungry? John Rahm, his wife had a, a baby right before the Masters. He played no practice rounds. Obviously, he was excited, his first child, and he finished in the top five. He's a contender at every major, has yet to win yet. He's the, now the guy, the best player that has never won a major. You wonder if he can break through because he's still really young and he's got as much talent as anybody. Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth playing well. you got to think that he's going to be a contender. And Bryson DeChambeau, he's kind of like a, a baseball player who can hit a home run at any at bat, but he can also strike out on three pitches too. I think those are the top five. And Xander Shoffley, Gary, that's a guy who really flies under the radar, has yet to win a major, but would you believe he's finished top 10 in eight out of 15 majors that he's been in? So those are the top six that'll be heading into the PGA next uh, this month. Our guest is Jim Hart. He's with uh, AP Radio, covers the Masters, and also uh, does some work for MLB Radio on Sirius XM. Well, let's leave golf now and uh, go across the board on a few other topics. Uh, where do you think baseball stands now? Do you think it has lost the luster that a lot of people say it has? I think that baseball, football, basketball, I think that they've all, I don't know if I would call it luster, but just I think it dropped off a lot of people's radars. They haven't been going to games. There hasn't been the coverage. 
the games, it's a, it's a different game now, or it at least has been during COVID. So I think they've got a lot of work to do. It'll be interesting how things go forward as far as how those leagues handle the media. There hasn't been much access right now. Or they, a lot of things are done on Zoom. The players are very insulated. I think it could be a push-pull between what management would like to do and what media would like to do and what the players would like to do. How comfortable have the players got not having uh, all the media around chasing them? So it's it's going to be real interesting to see the dynamics, Gary. And I think you have to wonder how many people that thought that they couldn't live without those sports, but once COVID came, they, they found a lot of other things to do. And are they going to keep doing those and maybe not going to the events and maybe tuning in as much as they did in the past. Let's switch to another team that you've covered a great deal or another uh, school that you covered, and that's Georgia Tech. Um, I remember back in the day, Chan Gailey, I, I think it was Chan Gailey, who said that uh, Georgia Tech was nothing more than a seven-win team in football. And, you know, they may some years have a great year. But do you think that's still true or do we have more hope? I think Georgia Tech is a school that not any coach can come in and win. It's a school. I, th- I thought I think Chan Gailey is a good football coach. I thought Paul Johnson was a good football coach, but they weren't matches for Georgia Tech. What you have to have at Georgia Tech because of the academics are difficult and it's a special situation. You have to have a coach who's a phenomenal salesman that can go out and sell, kind of like Dabo Swinney did at Clemson. You you have to have somebody to go out and get the players. I think Jeff Collins is a potentially a great match for Georgia Tech. He's a super salesman. You and I were at the Atlanta Touchdown Club and we saw him. And in fact, I asked him the question, what about the academics? A lot of coaches that have come in here say that's such a challenge to recruit. And in his mind, it's a positive and all the positive things he can sell about Georgia Tech. And that's what you need to be a great salesman, whether you're selling widgets or you're selling a, a school or you know scholarships that you're trying to get players in. And I think he's a guy that it will be a great match potentially for Georgia Tech. The only thing is with COVID, I think it stunted his ability to go out and get into living rooms and really bring in the players that he'd like to bring in. You look back at that football program, and they've had what uh, two or three national championships. Uh, the latest being under Bobby Ross, I think, back in 1990. Um, so you got to think there's some hope. Although the game of football has changed quite a bit too in in those years. It has. Money has become a lot bigger component in it, and. The days of teams like Georgia Tech, it seems, it seems like more than any other popular sport that college football, you've got the top two or three teams. It seems like every year now, it's Ohio State, Clemson, and mainly Alabama, and nobody else has a chance. You'll have every year maybe one or two or three teams that, that pop up and they're real good and then they'll drop back. It's just, it's a money sport. You got to have the facilities and it just teams like Georgia Tech that with the tough academics and not having the financial backing, it's just one heck of a challenge. Um, you know, recently, the uh, idea of a possible 8, 10, or 12-team uh, football playoff uh, has gotten some serious attention, I guess. After all these years of the bowl championship 
committee saying, no, we're never going to move off four teams. That's plenty. Uh, what do you think of expanding the playoffs? I could see eight because I think, I think there's things that are embedded in people's minds. It seems like every year everybody thinks that SEC invented college football and it's a phenomenal conference. But you know what? Some years it's not as good as it's been, and but you'll yet you'll see two SEC teams in there, and that make that cuts out the Big Ten champion. It cuts out other champions. You have like UCF, uh, Central Florida was unbeaten a few years ago. They didn't have an opportunity, and you really cut out the Cinderella component, which captures the imagination of the public. So I think by going to eight you're going to be able to bring in some teams. I think you're going to expand the interest of the sport. And you know what? Wouldn't it be fun if one year a UCF or some team came out of nowhere and won it? That would, that would be phenomenal for college football. Kind of like March Madness. That would be, uh, that would be terrific. Um, basketball, switching to tech basketball. Josh Pastner finally got a pretty good season under his belt. And he said five years he'd make the tournament, and he was there. He sure did. I think a lot of people questioned about where he was going to take the program, and he struggled quite a bit, had an excellent year this year, and and talk about bad luck. Then he gets into the tournament, and his top player was not able to play due to COVID. I think he has a challenge going forward. His two top players will not be back next year, so how can he build on this year in recruiting and what type of team can he put on the floor next year? Can he keep it going, or was this just a one-shot deal? Well, he's a very charismatic coach. You talk about the ability to recruit, and I think he can probably do that. But again, you've got uh, it's tough to recruit at Tech, and uh, we'll see how that, that all works out. Um, you've also covered Georgia football, the dogs, and uh, we're looking perhaps to another championship possibility this season. That's very true. I've I've had the opportunity to cover Georgia, and it's been a great experience. You go up there, and that's SE football, SEC football, right there with you know ninety thousand people, and it's interesting, Gary, because you think back to Vince Dooley and what a great coach he was, and then of course he became the athletic director. But then you went to Mark Richt, and Mark kind of elevated things as far as the win loss percentage. And now you've got uh, Kirby there, and Kirby has taken it to a whole new level. Georgia is now perennial. You talk about a guy that can go out and recruit, and then you have a school like Georgia with all the financial backing, great facilities, and he's, uh, you know, he's someone every year, year in and year out now. They're, they're in the mix. Of course, you're in the mix with Alabama, and that always presents a problem. Yeah. I think a lot of people are just hoping and praying that Nick Saban will retire one of these days and give everybody else else a better chance of winning. You know, we'll flip quickly to the Falcons. Uh, I guess you're not as close to them as you are to some of the other teams, but they drafted a tight end this year, and uh, there was a lot of controversy over that, whether perhaps the Falcons should have gone for a quarterback like a Justin Fields out of Georgia who, um, at least originally from Georgia, and then, of course, transferred to Ohio State. But uh, they went with the probably the more logical pick in uh, Kyle Pitts. You think that'll pay off for him? I think the Falcons are stuck in that quagmire of not making a commitment to rebuild 
trying to win and trying to piece it together like the Braves did it the right way. They decided, look, we're gonna get, we're gonna rebuild. They kept Freddie Freeman and everybody else that wasn't attached to any furniture or anything. They they jettisoned, and we see where they are now. Where the Falcons, a, a guy like Justin Fields, to me, a quarterback always has a lot of value. Even if you're gonna trade him in a couple of years down the few years down the road for whatever reason, he's gonna bring you back a lot more than the greatest tight end ever. And what the Falcons did, it wasn't just drafting Kyle Pitts. It was drafting Kyle Pitts so they can now get rid of Julio Jones and free up cap money so they can now afford the players that they want to have next year to be competitive and move forward. But the thing to do probably would have been to draft Justin Fields and go ahead and trade Julio and uh, bring it, you know, get the cap space and, and rebuild. But they're trying to piece it together, and I think that they're probably going to be somewhere around 500. Jim, thanks very much for being with us. This was a great, uh, a great show, and uh, we appreciate your time. And we'll definitely have to have you back again. Fantastic, Gary. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you who've been listening. I'm Gary McKillops. This is Sports Across the Board. You've been listening to Sports Across the Board. Join us next time as we take you behind the scenes on everything from the big events and the big issues to discoveries that are changing the world of sports. Sports Across the Board is an exclusive presentation of the McKillops Group. Our producer is Sean Powers. If you like what you've heard, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.